0: Life
1: is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour.
1: The majority of living things live in the ocean, and we humans are making a mess out of it or changing it. And squids, being both predators and prey, because they're in the middle of the food pyramid, or are they going to take over the world?
0: We're all science people. Science. Exactly. We know it's a good idea because it's lasted. We can teach kids and they get it.
2: There's chemistry in here, there's biology in here.
0: It's in whiskey, it's in ice cream, it's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We
1: can make the world better for Everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call in show. So if you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please call in to the number 470 Ask Bill. That's 470 275 2455. See what we did there? 470-ASK-BILL where you ask Bill questions. (laughs) So to find out when to call, check me out on the electric internet that the kids use. Once again, I am joined, of course, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey.
2: Greetings, Bill. Seriously. So, you know, Bill, as you may know, um, I spend a lot of time, maybe a little too much time uh, on Twitter. And uh, what I enjoy there is uh, not so much the uh, the horrible knockdown drag out fights but the the cool videos I was just the cool watching videos uh, the yeah, kids I was just watch. watching one uh that seems to show an octopus dreaming it was just so mysterious and it really got me thinking about there's all this world, all this life down in the deep o- ocean that we barely know about. And, of course, we
1: depend on the ocean. And we for depend on the ocean. And I was thinking,
2: there's so much more I want to know. And that seems like something that you and this show can help me with.
1: I believe you have once again, Corey, crystallized my thoughts. Because today we are joined by biodiversity scientist at the American Museum of Natural History, AMNH, as we call it, Dr. Samantha Chang. Welcome to Science Rules, Dr. Chang. Thank you. You are a fan of the headfoots, the I cephalopods. I am a fan of the headfoots,
3: yes. No so a, torsos.
1: So tell us what a cephalopod is.
3: So a cephalopod is a group of animals. They are in a phylum called mollusca. Um, these molluscs. include things, mollusks like clams and snails and sea slugs. What about my old boss? Huh? <laughs> Try not to snort here. <laughs>
2: uh, Bill's going to be here all week, by the way.
3: <laughs> so go
1: ahead. Um, mo- clams. So clams.
3: clams and oysters and lots of the squishy stuff, a lot of things that have a hard external shell. And within this group, there is a class called cephalopoda. And cephalopod means head, foot, ceph and pod, uh, the two roots there. And these are your octopus, your cuttlefish, and your squid, as well as nautilus. Oh, the
1: Nautilus is in the same uh, group. They are. Yes. Now I say group. You said class. They're a class of uh, animals, like uh, insects are a class. Yes. Class Insecta. So class Mollusca.
3: Class uh, Class Cephalopoda and Phylum Mollusca.
2: So well, okay. wait, so, wait, so mm-hmm. And their head foots because their heads are directly attached Touch. to their feet, and there's sort of no torso in between. Is that where the name comes from?
3: Exactly. They have many arms um, and tentacles, depending on whether they're an octopus, a cuttlefish, or a squid. And their head and all of their internal organs that are within that cavity are directly attached to those appendages. But
1: this is once again the land creature saying, "Where's your thorax, man?" Pretty much, or woman, and they're maybe down there saying, "What is with all that extra?"
3: Right, it, you know, your your mouse and your stomach are really close together there.
1: Yeah,
2: okay, wait, okay, wait a second. So arm, leg tentacle. What's, What's the a, difference? Yeah, what is the difference? And like how do you know does an octopus have eight arms or eight legs or both, neither?
3: So an octopus has eight arms. Uh, the difference between an arm and a tentacle is that the arms have suckers all the way to the tip and the tentacles just have them at the very ends. And so your tentacles can be used for a lot of different things. So, you know, they'd be used to bring prey in closer to the body where they're grabbed by the arms and then eaten. Uh, so you can think of you know, cuttlefish, the way that they hunt is they hang out in the reef. Tell us they...
1: about cuttlefish. I think a lot of people don't even know what a cuttlefish is.
3: So a cuttlefish is closely related to uh, things like our squids. Um, but what's different between a cuttlefish um, and a squid is that they have this hard internal sort of shell um, called a cuttle bone. And so, you know, I used to say when we were out in the field and we were looking for squids to pick up at the fish market, that if you poke something that looks kind of like a squid but it's hard— it's a cuttlefish, but if you poke it and it's really soft, you're a squid, and it's good to collect.
1: So when we were doing the science guys show, it's very important to distinguish, like what makes a fish a fish. You got to have a backbone. Mm-hmm. So does a cuttlefish actually have a backbone?
3: No. So they don't have a backbone, but they do have that cuttlebone, and so that cuttlebone
1: is it a bone or cartilage?
3: So it's made of a sort of like a chitinous material, like uh, your fingernails, kind of like that. Um, and so they're they're calcium based. And what you find in squid are things like pens. And these are leftovers of that external shell. Pens. Yes, a pen. um, Or sometimes called a sword.
1: (laughs) A a squid has a cartilaginous sword or pen. in its
3: body. And that sort of gives it a little bit of internal structure. And so ancient cephalopods had an external shell. So the nautiluses that exist in the oceans today, they're the last living cephalopod that has that external shell. And so, over time, you know, between the Jurassic and the Cretaceous, during this big adaptive radiation of marine life, where lots and lots of marine species were coming into existence, well,
1: it, radiation in this usage means spreading out. Mm-hmm. It's not, not a nuclear thing. Not
3: a nuclear radiation. Um, people also call it the marine Mesozoic Revolution. Um, <sighs> this was a time where exciting times. <laughs> it was very exciting, an evolutionary time uh, where we had a lot of new species coming about in the ocean. So, new fishes, new predators. So
1: what? If I'm a, if I have a shell, I'm thinking I'm in good shape. I got a shell, I'm protected. But I got to lug the shell around.
3: Exactly, and so that was a trade off that a lot of ancient cephalopods, we think had to make. And so a lot of the ones that had that heavy external shell, and even ones that had heavy internal shells, weren't able to swim away as fast. And so the way that cephalopods move is by sucking water in to uh, their body through the mantle and jetting it out through the funnel. So this sort of jet propulsion way of movement. And when you have that shell, it does limit how big your body can expand and how fast you can move. So for a lot of those, you know, they had experienced a lot of drag. They couldn't get away from predators as well. And some species started to evolve this squishier body with an internalized um, shell.
1: Uh, Not quite a skeleton. Exactly. So I just, I do want to move on from cuttlefish, <laughs> but is a cuttlefish not
3: a fish? A cuttlefish is not a fish. A starfish should be a sea star. A sea star, yeah. So should
1: we pioneer the term sea cuddle?
3: Ooh, a sea cuddle. That's very, uh. or we could
1: just call them cuddles.
3: Yeah. I mean, they are, they are a little cuddly. They are quite curious animals.
1: Uh, how do you know they're curious?
3: Ah. <sighs> I've had I'm many personal experiences. I'm wondering how do you
1: know they're curious? Having a good
3: old cuddle with the cuddle I mean. Fish. You're swimming around? <laughs> are you scuba diving? I did a lot of scuba diving, and um, then a
1: cuttlefish, a cuddle, a sea cuddle,
3: a sea cuddle, as we might Jets up them. to
1: you, siphons up to you.
3: I think they yeah. It was a, it was a slow siphon. Um, so I was diving out in Indonesia, and my first experience with a cuttlefish. Um,
1: how deep are we?
3: We are pretty shallow, probably about 20 feet. In mm-hmm, the water, yeah. so a lot of cuttlefish are quite shallow water species, mm-hmm. um, and this particular one was just—it was just hanging on a coral there.
1: If you could see her, she's—you like, you ever seen people describe what their dogs do? Yep. Yeah. She has her thinking. little cuddle paws over over her over her notes. She's yep. cuddling.
2: Yeah. So, uh, uh, so how old were you at the time of your first cuttlefish experience?
3: Oof. I am gonna guess I was probably twenty-two. Twenty-two. So about yeah. to, okay. the curious cuddle. So The this case curious, of a curious cuddle. I, in some ways, perhaps I was the curious cuddle. And I saw this cuttlefish sitting there, and I really was interested in, in slowly coming up to to see what it was doing, what its behavior was like. And this cuttlefish just turned around and stared at me. And so then we're both sitting there staring at each other for a while. My dive buddies at that point were getting very irritated because I was sitting there. Staring at this cuttlefish. And then. Or it we started, have research to conduct Yep, or We something. have things to do. We're going We've through it. You know, and, pr- and probably see. other
2: cuttlefish are thinking, like, what's up with this cuttlefish? Why, why, why is, this one? Why, is, why are you staring at this person for such a long time?
3: <laughs> and so, you know, cephalopods communicate with their skin. They can change the color of their skin, they can change the texture of their skin. Um, and many species also communicate with their arms and their tentacles. And so for cuttlefish, as well as some squid, Different arm positions can signify different things. So when cuttlefish are hunting, they stick their arms out sort of into groups to the side like a like an airplane, sort of, mm-hmm. and, and sort of speed around the water and sometimes run this striped pattern that rotates on their skin to mesmerize their prey. And so wow. we're sitting there. It's
1: like people with that disorder if there's a flashing light.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. And so you see that you can imagine being a fish and swimming around and seeing this strobing light and being like, oh. Goodness, I don't know what's happening. I'm oh God, f- I've been eaten. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna stay real still to see what this thing is, and then you, then he or she gets eaten. So there's the cuddle.
3: There's the cuddle. There you there's are. me. There we are having this moment, and it starts to move its arms around in all sorts of patterns. And then I'm sitting there going, I can totally talk. To this cuttlefish, we can communicate. So I started moving my arms around, and then so we kept it's like doing you're
2: doing it. semaphore almost.
3: Yeah, a little bit of like a little arms above the head and and sideways. And so who knows what I was saying? I was probably I probably sold my firstborn child to this cuttlefish without knowing it. And you know, we had a really interesting moment, and it was a really interesting sort of way to observe their behavior uh, in the wild and, and see what they can do. And you know, scientists uh, who study cephalopod behavior have you know, looked at them and kept and just seeing the different ways they they sort of learn about the environment around them. They can change their skin to match any background. You know, people have put paintings of the Mona Lisa underneath an aquarium tank and watched as the skin has sort of changed to so here's not the pink texture, but the color.
1: It's, it's not just cuddles, but the famous uh, animals that are out that do this are the octopuses, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How is this done? Have you, you guys have studied and studied this, I take it. How yeah. do you get camouflage so perfectly if you are a cuddle or an octopus? Can squid do it?
3: Squid can. They don't change their skin texture. As much as cuttlefish and octopus do, and part of this might be due to the different places where they live. So and there they swim.
2: Are,
1: they have uh, wavy arms, swim fasters. They squiggly.
3: they are wavy arms and, and swimming fast, but they also live more out in the open ocean. And so you get a lot of large squid species that live in the deep ocean, that live out in the open ocean. And there are some that do live closer to shore, you know, closer to these very varied environments like a coral reef or a seagrass bed or, um, you know, the pier.
1: And so they can change to match those different uh, surroundings.
3: Yeah. And so what a lot of squid do is they can change sort of the way that their body reflects light. And so if you can imagine, you are know, a squid and you're swimming around in the water and there's a predator underneath you. That predator underneath you has the advantage of being able to see your silhouette in the water. You know, oh, looking, the looking up, up against the, the, yeah.
2: the lit up surface yeah. of the ocean. You can imagine,
3: you know, all those movies with, you know, the sharks looking up and you can see the, the swimmer on their surfboard. And some, much of the same way, that's what happens to animals in the ocean as they're swimming sort of closer to the surface. But what they can do is something called countershading. And so they Counter can...
1: Countershading. Mm-hmm. So
3: some animals have that built-in. That's, that's their coloring. They have a lighter colored underside yeah, you, and a darker top side. If you topside.
1: catch a fish, mm-hmm. observe fish. A lot mm-hmm. of times they're white, shiny on the bottom and dark, scaly on the top.
2: Or, mm-hmm. or penguins are like that.
3: Or penguins, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe eventually humans also. <laughs> but... Especially well, if you're well, well, particularly on. sunburned are, on the back. Are,
2: are you giving away something here about, about, about human evolution? This is, this is an interesting term I we've know taken. Things.
1: <laughs> so there you are. You're, sw- you're, a, you're a squid.
3: So you're a squid. not
1: too far from the surface. Predator. Who's a predator for you?
3: Oof, lots of things. Larger fish. Larger squid. Larger squid. Fish, larger squid. Um, you know, depending on what part of the ocean you're in, you could seals and sea lions um, as well. Whales. Humans, um,
1: of course. Humans.
3: And so a lot, a lot of the things that we know about what eat squid are by looking at the gut content of these predators. Mm-hmm. And so we've discovered that, you know, squid are actually really important in the food um, in the food web of marine ecosystems because they're a mid-level, what we call mid-level trophic um, so species. So there's
1: benthic, that's the bottom.
3: Right. So in this case, it's not necessarily about where you live in terms of depth in the ocean, but in terms of how many things you eat. And how many things uh, eat you? You're in the middle uh, of the And pyramid. so they're right in the middle. And so you can imagine that, you know, if squid were to disappear, if a lot of cephalopods were to disappear, it will change how all these food webs are structured. Because all of a sudden, this this core center disappears. So right. let
1: me ask you an unrelated but related question. Recently, I was in Maine, the the country, the state of Maine here in the U.S., and they were uh, – we met with somebody – the head of education at the Booth Bay Aquarium, and she was telling us that the lobster population has exploded or has gotten very, very large Mm -hmm. because humans have eaten all the fish that used to eat the lobster larvae. All right. My understanding is an octopus has thousands of eggs at a time. Is that right? Uh,
3: They can Depending on the species, they can have thousands of eggs. Uh, Squids certainly also can have thousands
1: of eggs. So then everybody's eating the squid larvae. Is that
3: right? They are. So what's... By everybody. (laughs) Everyone's doing it. Um, They're eating both the larvae as well as the adults. Mm -hmm. And what's quite... So the the way that squid live... um, sort of call it the live fast and die young and have lots and lots of eggs sort Mm -hmm. of lifestyle. Um, And so they have really high rates of egg production.
2: Wait, Um, so how how long do they live?
3: Oh, it varies. Um, So the squid that I work on, they live in uh, California, and they also live in a different species, different group of species, lives in the Indian and Pacific and Mediterranean and Red Seas. (laughs) And really uh, what do everywhere. we
1: call these squids? Yeah, what, uh,
3: what is
2: your squid of preference?
3: So my my two, so my squids of preference uh, are in a family of squids called Loliginidae. They are nearshore squids. So they pred- predominantly live along the coastal shelf, um, and they tend to live pretty short lives. Uh, anywhere from six months to a year. Mm-hmm. Um, really depends on temperature. So, the, the way that squids mature is really tied to how warm the oceans are around them.
1: The warmer, the faster. One the warmer, the faster. All right. Mm-hmm. So, then uh, they're swimming along. Let's get back. The predator sees the squid.
3: Oh, yes. The sees predator the sea sees surface. The squid. And so what squid have, um, as well as other cephalopods, are these cells in their skin that not only can change color, but other ones that can reflect light. And so those cells can be activated to reflect that light back to get that similar countershading kind of effect.
1: And so uh, they do that to avoid getting eaten. eaten.
0: Stick around for more Science Rules after this.
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only
1: one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Science Rules
0: is
3: back. You know, one of the things that people have started to look at with cephalopods is... The fact that their brains are dispersed throughout their body.
1: Yeah, the brain is not one place the right. way it is in some civilized. Now is there like
2: but is account. there also some central brain in the head and then something more through the body? How does that work?
3: Yeah. So in some senses, they'd still have that central brain, but the way that their nervous system is distributed through their body, they're able to make those decisions on the fly. So, you know, for us, we if we touch something that's cold, you know, that signal has to travel up back up to our brain where we decide, yes, that's something cold, and then send that signal back to your hand where you're like, I'm going to take my hand away because it's too cold. So, for that, that that processing is happening, you know, in those appendages, in those skin cells. And so there's, you know, a lot of research now that's trying to figure out, you know, how much are they aware of the surroundings around them?
1: The nature of cephalopodic consciousness.
3: Exactly. Which, you know, is both a scientific question, I think, as well as a philosophical
2: one. Well, well, here, I'll tell you. I mean, what's very striking to me, and I'm sure you've seen all these all these videos that make the rounds, uh, you know, the the, the octopus... You know, lying on top of a rock and it's completely invisible because every part of its body matches the color of the rock underneath and it. Mm-hmm.
1: The texture. And, and the, te- the texture. And the texture. They and wrinkle I'm thinking, up their skin in rock like shape.
2: Unless mm-hmm. they have eyes or some sort of you know receptors on every single part of their body, how do they make the top of their body look the same as what's underneath them? That, to me
3: that's one of the most yeah, baffling Dr. things. About Chang, them. Yeah, Dr. Chang, yeah. <laughs> God, so much pressure. <laughs> you know, and I think that that is still one of the mysteries of cephalopods, and I think what makes them so interesting to understand. And you know, one of the, the biggest areas um, that people have focused on for cephalopod research is in neuroscience. Um, because, you know, because of the way they're able to rapidly make, you know, adjustments to their skin texture and to their skin color— based on, you know, whatever environment they're in. With
1: that said, speaking of more than one octopus, Mm -hmm. octopuses, are they solitary or are they social?
3: They can be social. So squid in particular tend to school. Um, And so many squid travel in a cohort. Um, of of squid that are around the same age and maturity. Um, and what's really interesting about squid is that they come together often in these big spawning aggregations. Um, Sp- spawning. Spawning. To so they come
1: together to interact.
3: Yes, they do. And the way that um, squid. Can we say
1: interact, or we could say interact? Are uh, you okay the-
2: <laughs> with that, Dr. Chang?
3: Yeah. I'd like to say spawn, personally. Spawn. Yeah. Yeah, It sounds a little
2: more superhero. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So they're spawning. There they are.
3: So they come together in these big groups. um, And, you know, the different, uh, the males and the females, they engage in different types of courtship behaviors. Uh, Arm waving, nails. tentacle waving. It's it's actually a lot of skin flashing, which sounds a little more illicit than. Yeah, I was going to say a, this is yeah. you're, this is
2: sounding a little. This is racier than spawning skin flashing. <laughs> a
3: little, a little skin flashing. So,
2: so this is so they they use the adjustment of the skin color. This is also for sexual signaling, or this mm-hmm. is kind it's of not like saying something
1: like you might see at a, a drunk person at a, a certain event.
2: Nope, Bill. Pl- no, <laughs> but, no, 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 Bill. Please go on. I, I,
1: I <laughs> let's out. I think you we're know, going on are, a good They're path.
3: already <laughs> naked, technically. So, <laughs> so uh, what's what's really interesting though is that the different um, individuals will flash different colors. Um, so, for example, females will sort of change their skin so that they're more translucent, um, so you can see their organs and see that they're ready to mate. Um, and some females that are ready to mate often will flash this this sort of transparent, translucent um, mode um, as they're swimming around this aggregation, and the males will flash different colors. And oftentimes they'll flash one color on one half of their body that's facing the female, and they'll flash an aggression display on the other side to other males. How do I know it's? An, how
1: do you, scientist Dr. Chang, know it's an aggression display?
3: So what people have done to study behavior is they've put different uh, individuals, males and females, into tanks at different um, sort of spawning readiness of different maturity and observed their behavior and we're able to classify that um, based on what they were doing. So you observe enough different individuals in different settings over time, and you're able to start to class different behaviors.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, I have to ask about the dreaming squid, uh, or I guess it was a dreaming octopus. Mm-hmm. Uh it- there's a video that shows an octopus asleep, apparently. Or what changing, we th- what we would call yeah, asleep. Assuming, appearing to be asleep, changing color as it's sleeping. And there was a scientist kind of interpreting that these color changes are almost as if it's dreaming. Is that legitimate? Is that for real?
3: <laughs> I mean it's certainly, I think, one of the first times it's been observed. Um so you know, it's it's also it's possible that you know there are Neural processes happening as the octopus is at rest.
1: So is there any relationship between this octopus dreaming and our dreaming is a question I cannot help but wonder about.
3: It's also a question that I wonder about. And I think, you know, I think there's certainly a possibility that the types of memories that are stored in an octopus brain um, can perhaps be replayed depending on the right circumstances and context. What I don't know about that particular octopus is, you know, was it in a tank? Was it in a stressful situation? You know, what sort of situation and what types of factors created the uh, the sort of scenario where that was happening in its sleep? Was this a one-time thing? Was this something that happens often? And that's really the basis, I think, of a lot of the questions we ask in applied biology is— you know, is this type of behavior that we're observing something that is common? Is this something that's stress-induced? Um, or, you know, is it something due to captivity or, you know, a certain yeah, situation right. they're in?
1: But your main deal is conservation. Is My that main right? deal
3: is conservation, And yes. so
1: here's the ocean full of also, I mean, the other two-thirds, as we say. And uh, the majority of living things live in the ocean. And we humans are making a mess out of it or changing it. Uh, we're uh, adding uh, carbon dioxide, which creates carbonic acid and so on. And squids being, if I understand this, mid-level, uh, both e and ETs, mm-hmm. both predators and prey because they're in the middle of the p- food pyramid. Uh, are they a, a big concern or are they going to take over the world?
3: You know, I think there are a lot of folks out there Perhaps including myself, who are convinced that the, our cephalopod overlords are going to come and and take over. But, and why?
1: The, why would they do that?
3: <laughs> so cephalopods, I think, have sort of emerged in popular culture, um, you know, as this this mysterious species that we model our our concepts of what aliens might look like.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there there was a, a science fiction movie, Life, that imagined life. You know, they discovered life on Mars, and basically. It was an octopus.
3: Yeah, I and, think. Uh, uh,
1: and the um, the recent movie um, Arrival. Arrival, yes, uh, was the sep- They had seven legs, they seven did, arms, and they seven still chemicals. communicated with ink. Yeah. Um, well, sure you do.
3: Of course, but you know, I think one of the things that in the beginning, when we we're thinking about how the oceans might change uh, over time, with both when the, you
1: say in the beginning, when was this?
3: Yeah, sort of. I think in the beginning of thinking about how cephalopods would respond to uh, different environmental Five conditions. years ago, 50 years uh, ago? I would say probably a few decades ago. Um,
1: like a Contemporary with the Sea Around Us by Rachel Carson Carson and stuff like that?
3: I Yeah, so sort of in the time where our fisheries for fin fish, as we called them, so our mm. actual fish with vertebrae, started to decline, what we saw was that cephalopod populations were booming. And so... Not only were the populations seemingly remaining steady, but because there wasn't as much fish out there, people were starting to catch more cephalopods. So more cuttlefish, more octopus, more squid. But one of the things that's always been difficult for fisheries uh, for cephalopods is figuring out how we actually manage them. So as you can imagine, the ocean is a big place. It's really hard to figure out where these are going, you know, how long they're living, how they respond to different types of disturbances. Um, and for a lot of squid fisheries, they experience what we call a boom and bust cycle. And so you'll get these huge population booms where you have lots of squid to fish, and then another year they'll be gone. So for one species that I work on, the California market squid, you know, this is the most valuable fishery for the state of California.
1: This is where we get calamari.
3: Yes, that is where you get calamari. Um, and for that fishery, you know, After folks were able to observe the pattern of when these populations boomed and when they busted and correlate them with different variables um, for ocean conditions, they saw that every time there was an El Nino event, so where the temperature of the ocean was drastically different before, it was a lot warmer, you get in the next year or two, the next fishing season or two, a big major crash in the fishery. And so that allows for a little bit more predictability of how to manage that fishery. But what we're seeing in these past few years I don't know if people remember 2014, 2016, there was something called the Pacific Blob, and there was this mass of really warm water out in the Pacific Ocean, and that was coming towards shore. And so what it did is it it dramatically altered the temperature of these coastal habitats in California all the way up the West Coast.
1: How many degrees Celsius, degrees Fahrenheit are we talking about?
3: So, it really depended on where you were in the blob. Um, There are a couple degrees difference in some places um, where you didn't have as much water circulation. You had, um, I think it was up to five degrees difference. So, it's like the
2: warmer water just stays up top and doesn't get circulated Mm -hmm. around.
3: And then as it sits there, it tends to get warmer, deeper and deeper. And so, After that, what we saw was that there are squid occurring in places far further north than they've ever been before. Because it was warmer. Because it was warmer. And so in places like Alaska, where they had seen these squid before, but never in such high abundance that there was actually enough to warrant a fishery for it. You know, in the past few years, there have been enough squid up there that they're actually thinking about, you know, is, is this something that we should be fishing because they're here.
2: Now, Bill, you know what kind of a show this is that we're running here? This is a call-in show. You are correct, Bill. And you know what we have on the line?
1: Uh, Let me... I don't even have to guess. We have a caller. We do have a
2: caller. Is his name Brendan? Yes. Brendan, Brendan, are you there?
1: Are you out there?
2: Yeah. uh, Hi. Where are you calling from? Um, I'm calling from Orlando, Florida. Um, And I was wondering, as far as cephalopods are concerned, uh, what is, like, the whole... Is there a... uh, any kind of symbiosis or anything that we can look at as far as research uh, for squid and octopuses that have an impact on coral reefs? Like is there any way to introduce species or whatnot that would help to take care of uh, predatory species on coral reefs that uh, add to the calcification effect of like say the Great Barrier Reef?
3: That is a fantastic question. And to be honest, I'm not sure if anyone has really thought about um,
1: Does squid eat zooxanthellae or coral or whatever that can No,
3: so they don't. Um, do they live around reefs? They do live around reefs. So the species that – or the group of species that I study um, called sepia toothis is – it's called the big fin reef squid. And they live in and around reefs. And so they actually – the reef habitat is really important for them because it's a place for them to lay their eggs. Um, so they often lay them underneath coral, you know, those big plating coral that you see that look like a tabletop. They oftentimes lay their eggs underneath it because it's a bit safer. But they don't actually eat or damage the reef itself. Um, If anything, it's a place for them to hunt. Uh, Similarly, you know, octopus species will create burrows um, in reef habitats sort of hiding in between coral and uh, different types of sort of hard substrate to hide themselves. But whether or not cephalopods could be considered as something that could help protect reefs you know, I think one of the things we have to remember about coral reef ecosystems is that, you know, all of those organisms are connected to each other. And so by conserving one, you know, if we want to save one particular species, we're going to have to make sure that their habitat is also viable as well. And that's what a lot of uh, fisheries management is trying to do, especially in in areas that fringe tropical coral reefs, you know, in order to make sure that squid fishery is still around, for people to have jobs, for people to have food to eat. They're going to have to make sure that that coral reef environment is going to be protected. There you go, Brenda.
2: Okay. And you're involved, uh, Dr. Chang, in a number of different conservation programs. Are you involved in programs specifically aimed at protecting the reefs?
3: So I am. So one of the things that I do as a conservation scientist um, is try and figure out what those Uh, connections between different organisms, between them and the ecosystem, as well as between people.
1: In the food web, Mm -hmm. the uh, food pyramid of the sea.
3: Exactly. Or as I think many of us like to call it, the social ecological system. Um, And so thinking that people are just as integral and important a part of the natural world um, as, you know, any squid or fish or coral.
1: Brendan, thank you very much for your call. Thank you. You've started uh, started you. us down a fabulous road of conservation. Valerie, are you out there?
3: Yes, I'm here. Uh,
1: you, Where are you calling from?
3: I'm calling from San Francisco.
1: Uh, out west someplace. So you have a question.
3: Yes, I wanted to call about sushi consumption. Um, is it bad for the ocean that I and other people are eating more and more sushi? You know, what's really interesting about Where our seafood comes from is that because now we have planes, um, you know, our world is much more connected, our food comes from everywhere. And one of the things that is really surprising uh, that we found in our work on seafood is that the sushi we get sometimes isn't actually what we think it is. (gasps)
2: Scale. My goodness. Dun, 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 I'll make my own sound effects. So, <laughs> so the okay. issue it as meaning crab,
1: it's, but it's really something
2: Meaning else. it's not really the fish that we think we're eating? Right. Exactly. So... What is it and where is it coming from?
3: So there's so there's two issues here. One is that the fish that you think you're eating... So say you order some, um, some yellowtail.
2: I've done that.
1: Yellowtail tuna.
3: Yellow, uh, yellow, or yellowtail as in um, hamachi.
1: Yeah. Sushi.
3: Right. And... You think you're getting it? It's a great fish, and then you. We did some DNA barcoding, so we took a little bit of
2: wait DNA barcoding. I think we need to decode that. So
3: okay, let's break it down. The
2: barcoding. Yes. yes.
3: So like us, every living creature has DNA in it, and this is the genetic code by which we are built, and each one of us has a unique barcode that corresponds to us as an individual, us as a species. And so what we can do with seafood, especially sushi, because it's raw, is we can take a little bit of that sushi, we can extract their DNA, and run it through a database of all these different fish species and identify what species of that fish actually is. It's
2: like you're taking a genetic fingerprint to see, is this really the fish that they say it is?
3: Exactly. So doing a little bit of sleuthing there. And so, you know, myself, as well as a lot of different scientists around the world, said, okay, let's look at the fish that we order in our restaurants. Are they actually what we think it is? And we discovered as, you know, for example, in the city of Los Angeles where I worked, that half of the fish that we had ordered wasn't actually what we thought it was. And this not isn't really an issue of, say, people trying to steal our money or trying to fraud us or trick us or sell us, you know, substandard fish for something else. A lot of times there's just confusion in, in you know, what fish we're even buying. So the way that our seafood gets to our plate is somebody fishes it? Oftentimes, it's then sold to a a larger distributor who sells that to an even larger distributor. You know, sometimes these are fished out at sea, and that fish changes hands a lot of times. Sometimes it's processed. You know, you you cut the fish up into fillets. It gets frozen. It gets into port. You know, it goes through another wholesaler. It goes to a market, and a then it gets to a restaurant. Of And then it gets to you. So there's lots of opportunities there for things to get mixed up. So should she eat sushi? So should you eat sushi? Yes, (laughs) you can still definitely eat sushi. But I would say the best thing for you to do, given what we know about the state of our marine resources, is to ask what your fish is and where it comes from. When you figure out what fish you're eating, I would do a little Googling and... Uh, figure out, you know, what's the state of that fishery. There are great apps out there. Uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium has a Seafood Watch app um, where you can look up your fish and see, you know, whether or not it's endangered, whether or not, um, you know, it's a good choice alternative, if you should avoid it. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard. It's It seems like a lot of information, right? I, I certainly feel a bit overwhelmed whenever I go to the seafood counter and the poor guy there is like, could you make up your mind already? <laughs> But, it, you know, I think the more that people start to do that and the more people are aware that this is something that people find important, the easier it will be and the quicker we'll see change happen so that we're getting fish that are fished sustainably. Science Rules will be right back.
0: You're listening to Science Rules.
1: Now uh, we also have we also have Jordan. Jordan, are you on the line?
0: It's me. Hi, can you hear me?
1: Yes, yes. Oh, Where cool. are you calling from?
0: I'm calling from the studio next door. Oh, <laughs> oh my God! God. Oh, oh. The Calls are coming from inside
2: <laughs> the house.
1: Yeah,
0: I just have a I have a question. Um, are we
2: are we going to use you on air?
0: Yeah. Okay. Is that okay.
2: Yes, so we have we have Jordan calling from uh, behind a plate of glass in this studio.
0: You know me. Hey. Um, so I just have a question. I, um, I was home this summer, and I went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, and I was talking to someone who was working there, and we were looking at an octopus in one of the tanks, and she was telling me that this octopus is very, like, he, he was a really sneaky guy, and he um, he stole a lot of stuff from the employees that worked there. And I mean, like their like the wallets and things, Because he and got he, bored.
2: He's making unauthorized purchases he, on eBay. He, well, he, a, stole, a simple like, animal.
0: he stole the, the stick, like the feeding stick that they used to put in the thing to feed all the other animal life in the tank. And then apparently the octopus put the stick behind his back. As if they couldn't see it, the people working at the aquarium and he was being sneaky and funny. So I was curious if this is like a quirk of generally all cephalopods or if it was unique to octopuses or and if
3: this can like tell us how smart they are. That is a very hilarious story. <laughs> and it's also not the first time I think I've heard about octopus antics from various aquaria. Um also at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, uh, behind the scenes, there is astroturf across all the tops of the tanks around where the octopus lives, uh-huh. because it likes to leave its tank and go on little field trips to other tanks. And this has happened actually at a number of different aquariums. So the
1: octopus can live out of water for they quite can, a few minutes. They can
3: actually move out of the water for a little bit of time. And oh. so what you know, different folks who work in aquarium have experienced is octopus that mosey out of their tank, go into someone else's tank, move stuff around, eat other tank inhabitants, which, so the, the mystery of disappearing fish uh, was solved, I think, with some strategically placed uh, motion sensor cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually at the Santa Monica Pier Aquarium, if I remember correctly, they f- got flooded once, and not because a tank broke, but because one of the intake or out put valves, got turned on so that seawater from the tank just flooded into the aquarium. Tur- and, turned
2: on by an octopus.
3: And when they looked at the security footage, <laughs> it had crawled out, turned it on, and it crawled back into its tank afterwards. was
1: We don't know what motivated it, but probably he's trying to look for an ocean Perhaps, way back out I to mean, the
3: ocean. I mean, you know, or they're total assholes. I, either one. Shocking.
2: <laughs> oh my goodness. Corey, what could it be? You know, even deep under the ocean, you can hear that sound. That's, the sound. that's the thunder that comes from lightning, which tells me it's time for a lightning round with our guest here, Dr. Samantha Ooh. Chang.
1: So, Dr. Chang, so we ask you a question. You give us that quick answer as if, as if struck by lightning. Okay. Gently.
3: Oh, oh okay. All right. So, me, Dr. Chang, if you, were,
1: if you were an octopus, what kind would you like to be and where would you like to live?
3: I would like to be a blue ring octopus because I would be tiny but venomous, and I would live in the tropical oceans.
1: Where it's comfy. But you'd be venomous. You'd be, like, mean. Yeah. How
2: venomous would you be?
3: Like, I— So venomous. Really venomous. Like, chop off your hand venomous. (gasps) Otherwise, it'll travel to your heart and you'll die.
1: Wow. So if you get bitten by a a blue ring octopus— Take just, immediate Just chop steps. off your hand yep. immediately. Yep. Right. If pretty, you get bitten on the hand. Yep. That's, pretty, that's pretty badass. It yeah. is badass. And so what do they do with that venom?
3: So uh, what do the octopuses do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they use it to hunt for prey.
1: They eat a fish. They grab a fish, sting yeah. it, then yeah. the fish. And they
3: also use it to defend themselves.
2: Okay. So that could be you. you. I guess so, That yeah. could
1: be you. Yeah. She, a, a badass <laughs> uh, a cephalopod scientist. Like a blue ring octopus. Just try yeah. Try yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what's your favorite? What's the best octopus camouflage?
3: Ooh, changing the texture of your skin. That is pretty bad. That yep. is
1: also
2: striking. Yeah, I, I can get goosebumps, and that's the as far as I can go.
3: Right. Can you imagine how great it would be, how much money you would make if you're like, I can smooth out all those wrinkles? By myself. Wow, with just your mind <laughs> or just your
1: s- central nervous system distributed through your yeah, tentacles, do you yeah, and legs.
3: You're not even actively thinking about it, to
1: be you honest. Just get it done. Now, uh, I like this term, cuttlefish, but I much I much prefer sea cuddle. So I'm putting it out there right now
3: because I, I, they're not I fish. I mean, we can bring it up at our next meeting.
2: Yep. C- How
1: do we I'm feel putting, about
3: sea cuddle?
2: I'm putting in a plug for cuddle, which it changes the T's to D's. Make it a, oh, cuddle. a, cuddle. It's a, a cuddle. It's a cuddle
1: cuddle. Yep. But I think okay. it's from – seriously, you guys, I did do a little etymological research. I think it has to do with carrying ink. It's a sack for ink. It, it
3: Oh, yeah. And so mm-hmm.
1: the cuddle fish, sea cuddle, has an ink sac, as do squids and as your you other squids. cephalopod mm-hmm. buddies. Mm-hmm. Now, what's one thing you wish people knew about cephalopods?
3: <sighs> Ooh. Cephalopods, I think the coolest thing about cephalopods is how often they show up in our myths. And so, you know, we kind of think about them as these aliens. They show up in movies. I'm a big alien movie fan, so I love it every time I see a movie and they look just like some kind of cephalopod. But what's I think is the coolest thing about them is that people have been observing these creatures, you know, for millennia. You look at the ancient Greek mythology, and there's the legend of a strait where there are two monsters uh, on either side of it, and one of them is Skyla, um, and it's a woman with what occasionally is, you know, dogs or multiple dogs around her waist or these sort of mouthed creatures. Um and she is
1: badass in this case. She is.
3: And the other side is a whirlpool. And so sailors going through are sort of trapped between these two monsters. And and when you look at the different depictions and the descriptions of Skyla, they all sound a lot like a squid. Mm. Um and I just I, I love all these different multiple ways.
1: tentacles.
3: Multiple arms. tentacles, arms with you know mouths suckers. on the end, yes, suckers. Yes. <sighs> and so you know, I think a squid and octopus have integrated themselves into our lives in all these different ways that we did more than just you know they're, mis- they're
1: mysterious. They are they come mysterious. Go. Like these animals can fit through tiny openings because they, they can. have so little hard material inside.
3: Yeah, and as we heard before, they steal things.
1: They're whimsical. They're they are. What is the one thing about cephalopods you? Don't know, but you wish you did.
3: I, you know, I would really like to know, are there different uh, different other ways of self-applied communication besides with their skin? Um, you know, what do they do when they go offshore? That's that's a mystery.
1: I mean, uh, farther, deeper. Farther the sea. and
3: deeper. And so the squid that I work on in, in California and the ones I also work on in Southeast Asia, there are a lot of times that they are not in these shallow areas where they're being fished.
2: And you can't tag them. you can't And they're really
3: them. hard to tag. They, they tend to pick their, their tags off, um, which, you know, you can imagine if someone put a tag on you and you're like, yeah. oh, I don't want this. Mm. And, Plus, I'm very they...
1: dexterous with my eight arms. Exactly. Eight arms.
3: You know, you have no bones, so you can pick up something that's, you know, on your back.
1: Do you eat cephalopods?
3: So, I will eat squid. Uh, there was a Time, I did not eat much squid, mostly because the samples that I collected for my research, I bought them from the fish market, and rather than let them go to waste after we'd taken our samples, sort of looked at their organs and whatnot, so we would eat them. Mm -hmm. So there was, I think, one summer, um, my field team and I ate probably upwards of 80 kilograms of squid. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I, and I think look, I, you're I, fine I, now. I'm fine. I Yeah. We went through a period where I just, I couldn't, I couldn't smell them. I couldn't eat them. It was too much. But, you know, now I I do eat cephalopods, but, you know, much like all seafood, I really try and check where it comes from. And mm. if it's a fishery I'm familiar with, if it's from an area I know is well managed.
1: So what's next for
3: you, Dr. Chang? Like, in general? Yeah, well, like in your research. <laughs> like, or, or like, today. Well, we're hoping in you're
2: sephilop- going to continue <laughs> to live for a while. But, like, what's next in your research?
3: So, what's next in my research, uh, at least for cephalopods, is I'm planning on doing a bit more field work and trying to explore other ecosystems that these squid that I work on live. And so, I'd mentioned before that they live in the Indian, the Pacific, the Red Sea, and the Mediterranean. But, you know, the thing is, despite the fact that they have such a huge range— we don't actually know that much about them. We don't that know that much about their biology. We don't even know how many species exist. The other part of what you know I'd like to do with understanding squid, and I mentioned this before with, you know, the fact that squid and, and cephalopods are so sort of a part of our human culture is learning from people about, you know, what they know about the squid that are around them. And so some of the most insightful things that I've learned about squid are actually from fishermen working out in Indonesia. Um, you know, trying to figure out what habitats they were living in. And you can imagine if I go out on my own to a place that I've never really been before, I'm relying on my sort of biological and ecological knowledge to think about, okay, what habitats might they live in? What what they might be doing? And I'm just sort of out there exploring. But by working with people who live there, you know, who have lived in places for generations, been fishing these squid for generations, they know a lot more than I do. And so I was able to learn in some parts of Indonesia, you know, these squid – only live in certain coves there's places that they frequent more often than others they tend to avoid areas of fast water which is actually one of the hypotheses we have about one of the species that I work on that they avoid these these fast water currents and so they tend to have more localized populations so each you know place that they live that's an individual population, so those squid are more likely to hang out with other squid there, mate with other squid there, than they would be, say, across a big channel.
1: And their div- diversity would be more limited or recognizable. Right. This is just cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Samantha Chang, for coming to Science Rules today. We learned a lot about the ocean and our place.
2: And, cephalopods. and I love cephalopods. I love I cephalopods. I love them before, and now I love them more. <laughs> so thank you. thank you
1: so much for coming.
3: Thank you both. This has been fantastic.
1: I'm Bill Nye.
2: I am Corey S. Powell.
3: And remember,
1: when it comes to the cephalopodal, or watery sea creature part of our universe, science rules. If you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. It helps other people learn about the show so they can listen and turn it up loud. Thank you. Be sure to look on my socials, as the kids say, for when to call into the show. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. I'm on the booking of the face, the Twittering, the the gram, all that. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, some of you may remember this technology. Voicemail. Yes. Wow. Give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. And we will absorb your thoughts as best we can. Science Rules is produced by Jordan Bell and Corey S. Powell. Hey. Both appeared on the show today. Perhaps if Jordan leaves herself in when she edits... With extra production from Lisa Wang, who screens your calls. Our engineer today is Casey Halford the same Casey Halford who mixed this episode and composed our original theme song. Special thanks to Claire Rawlinson and Ashley Warren. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey... What happens? S- science rules. Yes.
0: Ditcher. Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity
2: Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises.
0: Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY,
3: or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador.